When I was growing up, one of the worst things you could be called by your fellow classmates was a wannabe. An earlier generation called wannabes copycats. So you get the idea of what we're talking about. A wannabe was someone who, for example, bought a $100 pair of Air Jordans. Now this was back in the day when shoes were 10 bucks. And so someone would go and spend $100 for Air Jordans. But like the Chucks that were a couple of decades before the Air Jordans, they were supposed to make you jump higher, run faster, and look better than all of your classmates. Truth be told, in the 50s and in the 80s, if you couldn't jump, you better not wear them or we'll call you a wannabe. Wannabes, copycats, are only interested in surface-level imitation. They don't spend a lot of time doing their homework, like working on their jump shots. Mostly, copycats or wannabes are really just about looks. Now, on the surface, this kind of poses a problem for readers of Paul. Because Paul frequently calls his readers to imitate him. This problem doesn't go very deep, however. Because he calls us to imitate. Imitators are not wannabes. Imitators are interested in learning. Interested, their imitators are interested in being caught, not simply taught. Because they want to grow. They want to improve. They want to excel in whatever it is that they're imitating. Usually, imitators are seeking to grow in areas that make them better persons, not just a devotee of fashion on or off the basketball court. The one who imitates, as opposed to the one who copycats, really seeks to honor those whose excellence sets those people apart. For example... A true imitator of Michael Jordan is going to spend hours, days, months, and years on a basketball court before they pay exorbitant amounts of money for a pair of shoes that are going to wear out in a few weeks. In fact, if you want to excel at basketball, there can hardly be a better example of a person to imitate than Michael Jordan himself. However, if you want to imitate, if you want to excel at life, there is no better example to imitate than Jesus himself. And there is no better way of doing so than to be in his word and with those who are in his word. So that you and I, like the Apostle Paul, can make disciple-making disciples. And this distinction between copycats and imitators gets to the heart of the current cultural hullabaloo. You may have heard it. Cultural appropriation is all over everywhere. Now, the Cambridge Dictionary helpfully defines cultural appropriation. It's the act of taking or using things from a culture that is not your own, especially without showing that you understand or respect this culture. Now, I'm bringing that into this discussion mostly because I want you to understand what you're seeing on TV and what people are talking about. I want you to see that what people are talking about is relevant to 
what the Bible has been saying for years. And it's true. When you copycat or other cultures and you disrespect them or other persons, it's true. We Christians should not engage in this. But cultural appropriation is also a concept used to bully those who are out of step with their culture. You, Christian, are called to be kept in step with the Spirit. As in all things, Christian, use discretion when you hear the world bullying you, and above all, imitate Christ and His Apostle Paul. Let's see where He calls us to do exactly that. I'm going to pick up from last week, starting in verse 13 of Philippians chapter 3. One thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward for what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body in the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Last week, we took time to emphasize the twin concepts of striving and resting. We must strive because God works in us to will and to work according to His good pleasure. We must rest because God gave us rest in Him. Then we saw, towards the end, and we'll see more tonight, that we saw Paul commanding this humility and the resulting unity that comes from genuine humility. Tonight, with this in mind, we will see that who we should imitate and why. We will learn to live the already while it is not yet. In one sentence, maturity in Christ will lead Jesus' followers to be humble as they are striving and resting. Then we will follow Paul when he calls us to make disciple-making disciples, rejoicing in spite of any and every so-called sacrifice because Jesus is coming again. Let's look at our passage for tonight and see where I get this. Beginning in verse 17, Paul says, Brothers, Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul returns again to the idea that Christians are to live in community. We are to live in such a way that we interactively learn from one another. We are to live in such a way that we are the iron that sharpens each other. And we are to live in such a way that we imitate each other and we are worthy of being imitated. All of this is what Paul is getting at. 
And so Paul says, keep your eyes on people. Well, now that's a little bit problematic, isn't it? Keep your eyes on people. Number one, people are sinful. People will show us bad things. Number two, people are not God. And we are told repeatedly by Paul and others to fix our eyes on Jesus. And lastly, I mean, let's just be honest here. People are people, and we're going to be disappointed. Yet, all this is true. It's all sadly true. And yet, Paul calls us to do exactly this. We are to look at those who are walking well. And we are to walk well with them. We are to reject those things that need to be rejected. We are to copy those things we are to copy. The author of Hebrews got this right. He said, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Note, consider the outcome of their way of life. Consider what is it that they're doing that's being good fruit, and what are they doing that's bearing bad fruit, and what does he say specifically? Imitate their faith. All of us have aspects of our lives that should not be imitated. You all got to give me an amen for that. Either that or next week we got a real sermon to come. You see, Paul and the author to the Hebrews understands the importance of disciple-making disciples. And at the same time, this reality of needing to make disciple-making disciples, we need to also understand the reality of sinful leaders. Nobody's got everything right. So imitate their faith. Paul continues in talking about imitating And he says, certainly there are those we should not imitate. Look with me at verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shames with their mind set on earthly things. Notice Paul characterizes these enemies of the cross with three truths. He characterizes them three ways. First of all, their God is their belly. Now there are many among us whose God is their belly. Now, I take it that Paul refers here to any number of physical appetites. I don't think that Paul's referring merely to sexual or food-related sins. I take it as a general term for appetites that seek to be filled by things that are not necessarily sinful, but are earthly in that they are earthly in that we are not interested in them for the sake of Christ. They are earthly in that we are not interested in these things that are not necessarily sinful because we're not interested in them primarily for the sake of Christ. Get back to that in a moment. The most important thing to see for these pe- the most important thing to these people is satisfying their desires. I don't take it that he means food to exclusion of anything else. Rather, I think he's talking about food because he wants to 
remind us of all of our various appetites. In other words, Paul knows that one of the most common stumbling blocks is the idea that we should eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. The best we can get is a full belly, so get it while you can. How many people do you know live like that? How many of us have aspects of our lives that are like that? My friends, we know this. This, is not, this kind of life is not life at all. There is no life, let alone eternal life, in spending your time on things that will be destroyed or that will destroy you. There is only life in Christ. And when Christ appears, you want to hear Him say, well done, good and faithful servant. This, and not a million toys, will be what satisfies you forever. Of course, you don't need to be Christian to appreciate the short-sightedness of this kind of life, but it communicates the idea that remains prevalent today. Just give me a hit. Let me watch my game. Give me whatever will satisfy me right now. When you have a person living like that, you can be sure that their God is their belly. Of course, there are other false gods serving them as just as deadly, but the one that Paul has in mind right here is this. But Paul further characterizes these enemies of the cross of Christ by saying they glory in their shame. They glory in their shame. If you live this kind of life, if you live the kind of life that just wants for right now, whatever it is that will satisfy my appetites right now, you will glory in what is shameful. Now, a really easy example of this is you go to Isaiah chapter 5, verse 22, where Isaiah warns us not to be a hero in strong drink. Don't be the kind of person who could toss back four beers in a row and be okay. You will do shameful things to get there and you will be proud of it. But let's be honest here. We're a bunch of church people. It's easy to pick on the drunks. What about the people who wrap up their hearts in golf? Oops. We might glory in the fact that we've seen every game in the last two years. We might glory in the fact that we predicted who would win each of those games 82% of the time. We might glory in the fact that we dress like our favorite golfer. Again, again, it's important to note here, it's not that golf is necessarily sinful. It's not. It's not necessarily sinful. But golf, like booze, like any number of other things that aren't in themselves bad, can turn into a God. And if it does, if whatever not necessarily bad thing we begin to worship turns into a God, it will be because we have our minds set on earthly things. I think Paul is mentioning the patently obvious here. Of course that is true. It could not be otherwise. As we go down this path, and I think Christians can go quite a ways down this path, 
As people go down this path of making their belly their God, our minds will have already been set on earthly things. In fact, it's worse than that. Our minds are at default on earthly things. And unless we are training ourselves, unless we are actively participating, as Paul says in Galatians, keeping in step with the Spirit, as opposed to keeping in step with the culture, unless we are doing that, we are actively setting our minds on the flesh, on the, on the world around us. And that part of us that has not yet been redeemed is what Paul calls the flesh. That is the part of us that must die. That is the part of it that Jesus calls us to crucify. That is what Paul says we must do by the Spirit that we put this flesh, this earthly mindedness to death. Now I want you to ask yourself a question. If my mind is set on earthly things, am I going to value Christ? Can I see Christ? Can I taste Christ? If my mind is on earthly things, the answer is no. And if my mind is set on earthly things, appetites that can be satisfied with no regard to Christ or His gift, will I enjoy Christ's presence? Will I enjoy heaven? To ask that question is to answer it. If you hate sports, why would you go to a football game? If you love things not for the sake of being happy in Christ, would you want to hang out with Jesus? No, you will not. And all of this, Paul says, leads to their end is destruction. Now, clearly Paul is talking about eternal damnation. I don't think he's talking about Christians here. I do think there's a warning, and I do think we need to pay attention. Oh, am I going down that road? But clearly, I think Paul is talking about non-Christians here. And he's talking about that because he knows that minds, set, minds and hearts that are set on the earth, on our flesh, are not going to be compatible with Jesus. And if you set your minds and hearts on what is merely of this world, you will find in the end you have lost everything. Because when you're laying on that bed and your last breath goes out, there's no Brinks truck following you to the grave. Nope. You will be tossed onto the trash heap of history, the burning, never-ending place of torment of those who refuse to find their treasure in Jesus. You have sought the world, you have sought and found the things of the world, you've worshipped the God of your appetites, and you have found that they will never satisfy you because you are not of this world. And fortunately, that is where Paul goes next. Verse 20 and 21. Two of the happiest verses in the Bible. I want you to be happy as you read this. But, he begins. We're not talking about that stuff anymore. Not 
eyes set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. I need an amen for that. (laughs) Come on, people. Help me out here. (laughs) Who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. First and foremost, woohoo! Praise Jesus! Amen! This is good news. We are heavenly citizens. Now, many of you will remember we came across this verse several months ago when we were in chapter 1, and we read verse 27. Only let your manner of life, literally, the word there is conduct yourselves as citizens. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I told you that the word in question is politueste. Aren't you glad you know that now? It's this idea to live as a citizen. And if you're living as a citizen, you want to live as a worthy citizen as opposed to an unworthy citizen. You'll remember that I took this when we were in chapter 1 as a heavenly citizenship because I came right here to this verse, Philippians 3.20. And so we asked ourselves then, and we might ask ourselves again tonight, do we want to live worthy? Do you want to live in such a way that when you breathe your last, you lose everything? Of course not. Of course not. Why would you? Live as a citizen of heaven. Christians, we do not belong to this world anymore. We are different. We belong to a different master. Therefore, it makes sense for us to live in such a way that reflects the new affinities we have as citizens of heaven. It makes sense for us to live in obedience to our new master. It makes sense to live the already while it is not yet. I want to look more closely at this phrase to see what it means. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 again. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Praise Jesus! our bodies are going to be transformed. But they aren't yet, are they? They aren't yet. We're getting slower. I'm wearing readers now. I have one pair at my desk. I have one pair in my truck. I've got a pair. Uh, Yeah, they're all over. I even have them for my pocket now, but I emptied my pockets before I came up here. We are waiting for a Savior. At minimum. I I, I mean, it it gets much better than this. But right now, at minimum, we're going to get de-stiffened. Right? That's a good thing. So fix your eyes on this. Let everything else This gets to the heart of taking our minds off earthly things. Let everything else that your eye falls on be seen in light of Jesus' return. If we are going to live the kind of life that 
takes our eyes off the things of this world and looks to Jesus, what that is going to look like is that while we are looking at food and clothes and toys, we are seeing them in light of the fact that Jesus is coming again. And those things are going to burn up. In fact, I've been looking for years. There was a song back in the 90s, and one of the lines in the song was, you can't take anything with you that doesn't fit into your heart. That is such a great line. Chet, you've got to find that for me and tell me where it's at. You can't take anything with you to heaven that doesn't fit into your heart. And so, when you're looking at stuff, because we've got to have clothes, Right? we got to have food. We're, we're going to have our toys. But we see these things in light of the fact that Jesus is going to come back. Hal, golf is not sinful, okay? <laughs> you can watch golf. But make sure that while you're watching golf or some other sport or some other entertainment, you're looking at it in light of the fact that Jesus is coming again. How can I use this as an opportunity to love people into the kingdom? How can I use this as a bridge to walk someone across so that they can now be citizens of heaven? Golf, food, clothes, target shooting, beekeeping. Use all of these as opportunities to talk to people about the fact that Jesus is coming again. Now, a new observation I had never connected before this week as I was studying, this this was really encouraging to me. Evidently, for Paul, the return of Christ stands as an essential doctrine that leads to godliness and away from ungodliness. The return of Christ, the the understanding that Jesus is coming again, is an essential doctrine that leads away from sin and leads us towards godliness. I don't think I've ever had that thought before. Sometimes we, certainly I, have thought of the return of Christ as something extra. Ice cream on top of a berry pie. It's really good, but you know what? I'll eat that pie without the ice cream. But evidently, Paul did not think so. If we are to have victory over our fleshly appetites, we must think back to the cross of Christ, and we must think forward to the return of Christ. Now, this is the way it works for me. I sometimes, especially when I'm feeling sorry for myself, I will think about what it is I am going to be free to do when I get to the new kingdom. Not merely in terms of the fact that there's going to be no more back pain and I'll actually be able to do some of these things. But I think in terms of all the things that I want to do here, and I either can't or I won't because I don't want to invest the time and money now. Someday I'll go live in the mountains. I'll be able to own a 100-acre farm and care for it. But here, I'm here to care for my family and care for my near ones so that I can with me bring them into the kingdom of freedom. 
So I'm willing to put those things off for now for the sake of the kingdom. And I, I, I think that the Lord does that well through me. But where I fail, where, where I don't do quite so well in terms of this, is I don't often just start thinking, man, Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming again. Praise Jesus! I, Lord, help me in this. I, I, I need you to help me in this, Lord. Give me a heart that looks forward and rejoices, which is exactly what Paul is getting at here in Philippians 3, 20 and 21. And this is where our faith comes. This is where we live by faith, not by sight. You've heard Pastor Benji, you've heard me, you've heard other preachers use this phrase, already but not yet. There are many things that are already true of us, biblically speaking, but we don't yet experience them in our day-to-day life. That's just the truth. So we live by faith. We don't yet live by sight. But we know based upon this passage that everything we await everything we give up in this world world will be overwhelmingly worth it it'll be seen as dust it'll be seen as just nothing oh there are things and experiences i long to have but i'm unwilling to give up my opportunity to bring glory to god for those And I preach that to my heart. Why? Why is it that I'm able to preach this to my heart? Because God guarantees His promises with the power that is able to subject all things to Himself. He will do it. Even if there's no elk hunting in the new kingdom, He will make sure that the sacrifice of not elk hunting will be overwhelmingly worth it when I get there. If one of you wants to go elk hunting with me, I'll go with you. And I bet, I would bet quite a bit of money that you can think of things like that for yourself as well. And all these things that you're sacrificing, all of these things that you're giving up because you're looking to Jesus and not to stuff, circumstances, and relationship, all that you have given up will be overwhelmingly worth it. Live the already while it is not yet. My friends, rejoice. Why? Because Jesus is coming again and every sacrifice you make for His glory and the growth of His kingdom will be worth it. Everything here is minor compared to the glory that will be revealed to us in that day. You will rejoice then because Paul tells you you can rejoice now. Because there is hope. Look with me at verse 4-1. Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. Don't miss the next words. Don't skip over. Stand firm. Now, we're getting all of our themes in this whole passage put together in those two words. Strive, rest, humility, unity, and rejoicing. 
All of that right here. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, I love you guys. I am willing, happily willing to sacrifice for you. I long for Christ to be formed in you, Paul says elsewhere. You are my joy and my crown, so stand firm thus in the Lord. Rejoice. Stand firm. Don't waver. It will be worth it. You don't have to be afraid of having wasted anything. No opportunities will be lost that do not give you greater joy in the future. And that is why you can live the already even while it is not yet. So this week, while you're suffering with your stiff back, while you're suffering with your relationships that are not where they should be, while you are thinking, oh Lord, if I could only have this circumstance, I would be happy. Don't believe it. Press on in the Lord. Trust Him. He will make every sacrifice you have made more than worth it. Lord, this is a matter of faith. We have to trust Your promises to believe this. And it is hard in this world. Therefore, we need Your Holy Spirit to meet us here. Meet us here. And Lord, cause us to rejoice. Let us remember this week as we are fighting our own flesh to remember the cross. Absolutely. The forgiveness that was won at the cross. But let us also remember the return of Christ and the fact that every opportunity, quote-unquote, lost, every, quote-unquote, sacrifice we make will be worth it when you come back, when we see you face-to-face. And Lord, we all pray together, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We love you, Jesus. Amen.